The passage today is Genesis 2, 18 to 25. If you have a house Bible, the page is number one. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, his, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Well, so we are in the final week of our series, Controversial Christ. And so um, you might notice that Josiah is missing here this morning because he realized we're preaching on Jesus and women. So he went and hid out out in the Ocala National Forest with Desmond. So um, anyway, uh, that's that's not really true. He is camping, and it's Desmond's birthday. Is it Desmond's birthday today? Today is Desmond's birthday. So so that's a good dad being with his son this morning. And so uh, one quick announcement as we get started. So we're wrapping up Controversial Christ this week. Next week, we get started in a brand new series uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, this series is called The Light of the Gospel. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And so over the, uh, when we get started in our new series next week, we're going to unpack what it means that we would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of this person named Jesus. And so uh, as you leave here today, make sure you grab one of our uh, 2 Corinthians scripture journals. And so uh, they'll probably be gone by uh, this week. And so make sure you grab them. Uh, It's just the text that's in the journal with a a page of notes that you can take for your own because one of the things that we do when we do these series is we want you to bring home with you the Word of God into not just your home, but into your hearts. And so we want those Scripture journals to be a way of you applying the Word of God to your life daily. So uh, this morning as we unpack this topic, Jesus and Women... I think it's one of the most important topics for our generation. I think that there has been a lot of errors that have been made by the culture and by the church. And so one of the things that I hope to do here today is I hope to just take the the word of God that's given to us and unpack it in light of what does God say and what is he saying to the world that we live in today? And as a church, how are we called to live according to his purpose. And so uh, I'm excited to unpack this topic. I believe that God is going to use this in the life of our church beyond just what we're talking about today because I've learned a lot this week. There's a lot of things related to uh, ministry in the church and the flourishing of women uh, that I've honestly looked into and said, man, God, would you... Would you bring renewal here in our church? Would you even help me learn and grow for the equipping and empowering of women for our generation? So I'm excited about that. Um, So um, there's a documentary that came out not too long ago. And uh, the tagline of this documentary is that 
the church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. And it has taken root in one of the most unexpected and radicalized nations on the earth. An unidentified church leader says, what if I told you Islam is dead? What if I told you the mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you no one follows Islam inside Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. The Iranian awakening is rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that owns no property or buildings, has no central leadership, and is right now predominantly led by women. About 55% of the disciple makers in Iran are women. What's fascinating right now is that these most powerful women leaders in Iran are the most gentle women. They're leading in a movement, going out in the highways and byways and sharing with prostitutes, drug addicts, with everybody they come into contact with, and that takes courage. They're courageous women. One Iranian couple that had the opportunity to move to the U.S. after living in America for a matter of months, the wife described that she wanted to move back to Iran. She told her husband, and he was surprised. She said to him, there's a satanic lullaby here. All the Christians are sleepy. I'm feeling sleepy. There's something that we should pay attention to. A lullaby that has us lulled to sleep so that we might not be on fire for Christ. It's a call to an awakening here. The documentary author notes, the story was disturbing because that woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was a greater threat to the kind of persecution that happens in Iran. She saw the spiritual sleeplessness that spiritual sleeplessness is a greater threat to her faith than persecution. And so I think one of the ways that would be appropriate for us is to pray for this church in Iran. If you watch this documentary, they'll tell you that women leave their houses not knowing if they'll come back. They might be killed or imprisoned, but they go <clears throat> with a passionate desire to see the gospel stir the nation to Christ. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you so much that your word is going forward in a world like we've never seen it before. And while we're here in the United States, Lord, we, we acknowledge that, God, the church has seen better days. But we also acknowledge that, God, there's an awakening that's in our midst. And when you do things in Iran that we can witness, like we see here, this growing women's leadership in a church that's causing flourishing to take place in a country where they're being persecuted, Lord, we pray that you would pour gasoline on that fire, Holy Spirit, and that it would fan into flame a wildfire that ignites the Middle East for Jesus. God, we pray for the surrounding nations. We pray for Iraq. We pray for Afghanistan. We pray for Turkey. We pray for Syria. We pray for these places where it seems impossible. But yet, Lord, we know that with you all things are possible. And we ask God here in our church that you would raise up men and women and children to follow steadfastly after you. And that, God, there were to be an awakening here. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Amen. So as I unpack 
our passage today in Genesis chapter 2. Last week I took you through the narrative of Scripture as we unpacked the controversial topic of Jesus and sexuality. And I'm going to do the same thing as we do that this week. There's kind of a four-part narrative. If you were to zoom out of the Bible and you want to capture the, tr- the forest instead of the trees, I-, I would give you four words to help you capture this narrative. And these four words from start to finish point to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. First word is creation. The second word is fall. The third word is redemption. And the fourth word is restoration. And so as we come to these controversial issues, we want to zoom out and say, what's God say about this? Because there's a lot of verses that you could point to. There's a lot of verses that you could go to. But what does God's word say about God's word? And how do we take a a picture of that kind of 30,000 feet up in the air? And that's what we're doing here today. And the first thing I want to point us out to is it starts with our identity. Women, it starts with your identity. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, you've read that if you've started a Bible reading plan at least once a year. (laughs) But there's, there's really some fabric that goes to that story, right? There's this intimate work of creation in which God leaves nothing out as he's forming man and woman. He he gets down into the mud. He gets down into the dirt and the grime of the earth. This newly formed creation, this newly formed incomplete creation, and he makes man. And how does he make man? Different than any other living thing that we've seen. Different than any other created thing. He makes man in his own image and after his likeness. And we see in Genesis chapter 2, which is really kind of an expanded understanding of what happened in Genesis chapter 1. It's almost like Moses zooms out in Genesis chapter 1, and then Moses zooms in in Genesis chapter 2. And you see that there's this incomplete creation still after the creation of man. And so he's bringing by the giraffe. And Adam says, that's a giraffe. Well, I'm bored. He brings by the elephant. He brings by the dog. And Adam is not interested at all in any of these animals being a companion to him. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. She'll make a suitable helper for him. And then in the most intimate way, out of the side of man, God takes one of Adam's ribs and from his side he forms the woman in his own likeness, says the scriptures. And so you can imagine Adam had a little awakening himself. (laughs) He wakes up and he sees this woman that's naked and without shame before him and immediately his first words are, will you marry me? (laughs) And you have this wedding, this beautiful union between man and woman, all in the beauty of God's original intention of creation. And so the point of identity here is that God did not create anything lesser in the woman than the man. God formed the woman in his likeness, just like he did the man. And there's this beautiful picture of creation where God brings a completeness to creation, not just after the formation of the man, but with the formation of the woman, that the world was incomplete until Eve came on the scene. And this is why the beauty of womanhood is still something that should be cherished today, still something that we should see with dignity and honor and equality in our world because in the eyes of God, there was dignity, there was honor, and there was equality. 
One commentator says that God did not make Eve out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor did, she, nor did God take her, uh, create her out of his feet so that she would be under him, but out of his side so that she would be partnered with him. And this is something that as, at Crosspoint here we, we want to grow in, we want to know, we want to build into, because there's, there's a cultural view in understanding an irreligious view and understanding. And then there's even a religious view and understanding that can be wrong. But how do we look back at God's creation from his word to understand what he says? Hannah Anderson, she says, By being made in the image of God, our ultimate identity is to reflect and represent him on this earth. Our ultimate identity. So, Let's take out the male and female identities that are given to us by God, by the way. But let's look at our ultimate identities. That our ultimate identity is that we would reflect and image the likeness of God to a watching world. That, that we carry that as the Imago Dei. That you women carry that as the Imago Dei. That is where your identity is. There are so many things that you can place your identity in. And all of these things, they don't, they don't cause you to flourish. They steal from you. And the created purpose of God is that you would find flourishing in your identity in the God who made you because you bear forth his likeness. This goes back to the, the, the sermon that I preached on Jesus in politics. You had the coin of Caesar and whose image was on the coin? It was Caesar's. And so when Jesus is asked the question, who does it belong to? Jesus says, I don't want it. Give it to Caesar. But give to God's the things that are God's. You, made in God's image, belong to him. And just like the coin that was having Jesus's, or Caesar's image and inscription upon it was a declaration of Caesar's lordship, you, dear women, you, dear men, you image, you reflect back to this world the lordship of God, whether you recognize it or not. And so we need to recognize that. We need to see that for all the goodness that God had intended for us to see. As a, a father now, I'm raising two young girls who are quickly becoming young, young women. Um, Maybe when they were three, they thought they were 13. Um, and so my two girls, I have one that's 10 and one that's eight. I'm, I'm realizing their propensity to put their identity in their self-image. And that one of the things that I have to do is I have to remind them of their beauty. I have to remind them that they are beautiful because they really are beautiful girls. But I also have to remind them that their beauty is not in eight that it comes from God. And yes, God created them with innate beauty, but it comes not defined by the way that they look, but the way that God made them. And so when my youngest daughter one day was in the bathroom, there was like an explosion of mom's makeup bag all over her face. And she comes out and she's got this big smile on her. And we thought that she was bleeding and that she had bruises all over. And we're like, what? And I tell you what, to this day, we have to remind my daughter, Lily, that you don't need mascara on to be beautiful. You don't. Because you are beautifully made in the image of God with a dignity and worth and value that comes in him. This is, this is just a real simple reminder. If you, if you kill a pig and eat it, it's called barbecue. If you kill a human and eat it, it's called cannibalism, right? It's a grave sin, a grave sin, because God's creation is meant to be cherished and protected and honored as the most valuable thing in all the world. One human being is a priceless life. And so as I raise up my girls, I want to raise them to see that their identity is not in their image. It's not in anything else other than, than God in Jesus Christ. But what happens is we have this mind that's kind of hardwired to think that our identity comes from somewhere else. 
Let, let me give you a couple, uh, a couple of the identity topics of our world today. There's occupational identity. Your identity is built upon what you do for a living. Occupational identity. There's ethnic identity. There's racial identity. There's gender identity. There's sexual identity. There's political identity. And all of these identities can captivate the heart in such a way that they become ultimate. And some of these identities are helpful categories. But when we place them as ultimate, they become unhelpful. And some of them are just flat out unhelpful. They're not good. And because we're trying to build an identity on something other than God and being made in his image. We're redefining the way that God wants us to see ourselves. By the way, here's, here's a little note. I, I find it interesting that, you know, there's all these tests that tell us about ourselves. Myers-Briggs test, Enneagram, uh, there's uh, the strength finders, and, and all these tests are really good. But here's where we, we have a fault. Here's, here's where we come into a problem. When we're looking for those tests to tell us more about us than God does, that's where we have a fault. And, and can I tell you, sometimes we can be so caught up into that. Now, those tests can be good because one of those things do is they help us understand our nature and character in light of who God is. But we can completely miss that. And so my encouragement to you, church, is that, you know, find out who you are, but start with the scripture. Start with the word of God and allow the word of God to tell you who you are in light of who God made you to be. The church used to have what was called these catechisms. They were uh, questions and answers regarding to the faith. And uh, they were memorized by uh, the church and by their children. In fact, it was a way of parents training up the children in the way that they should go in a real simplistic way, uh, meaning that they just took the word of God and they applied it to these different questions. And Westminster Confession number 10 asked this question, how did God create man? And the answer is, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, with dominion over the creatures. You take a step back and you look and you see that God created you with righteousness, with knowledge, and with holiness, and with a dominion over all the creatures to be a good steward of God's good creation for his good world. And church, that's where we're going today. And you want to, uh, we need to take a look at this uh, in the text as we also see this within uh, the, the differences in men and women. So uh, one of the words that we use to describe the differences between men and women is complementarity. So it's not like peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly where you got one piece of bread on this side with peanut butter and you have one piece of bread on this side with jelly and you bring it together and you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No, complementarity is, is really, it's, it's almost like two interlocking hands. They go together, they interlock together. There's differences among the sexes of men and women. And those differences are God-given and they both are part of a description of God's nature and his character, but they complementary, uh, they, they, they complementary fit together. They necessarily go together in this world. Th this isn't even in marriage. This is in, in God's likeness, in singleness, and in God's likeness, in the jobs, your professions, the things that he does. There's a particular way in which God has wired you men and women to be different, but to work together to build unity and flourishing among us. And so the, um, one of the things that is kind of argumentative around this is uh, there's a word in the original Hebrew text uh, for that word helper. So if you look at Genesis chapter 2, you will see that it is not good for man uh, to be alone and that God will make a suitable helper for him. And this text is actually, one word is very controversial because it kind of determines how you view women related to the scripture. And the word is the word ezer. And uh, Ezer is the word for help or helper. And uh, God created the woman to be man's help. And now, 
there's stereotypes that go into this. And a lot of times you think, okay, that's doing the dishes. That's being barefoot in the kitchen. That's making sure dinner's ready to go. And that's not necessarily the word that captures help. It could be help. And that word captures the essence of it. So which word is it? Is it help or help? Well, it's both. That God gave man the woman for his help. And God gave man the woman for his help. I need you. God gave her to man because man needed woman in his life so that he might better understand who God is. One of the privileges I have as being a husband is to see how my wife reflects God's nature and character in ways that I never would have imagined. My, my wife is an organizational genius around the house, man. She knows how to organize everything. Yesterday, uh, she spent most of the morning just putting things in order. And guess what I did? I went around and I disordered everything like an idiot, right? Um, and, uh, and she has this passion to see things in order. And really, it helps me lead a, a better home. In fact, it's an area where I've just said, hey, Carrie, you're doing this, and I'm out of here. The best way I could lead in this area is let you take it. And oftentimes, marriages reflect that, right? Like, you know, if, if finances aren't your thing, um, then how do you create flourishing in your household? You let your partner do the finances. And you work together, right? But you're building on one another's strengths where you're weak, and that's where we need help. It's not necessarily in the things that are, are, are brought into our stereotypes uh, around that word. John 14, 26, uh, we see that God, the Holy Spirit, is known as the helper. He says, but the helper, this is Jesus talking here, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and bring you Bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That the Holy Spirit, the helper, will teach you this beautiful rhythm of understanding who God is and what he has done by others, men, by women, that God has put in your life. Now, a lot of uh, the controversy around the topic of Jesus and women are uh, two words. You heard me mention complementarity. Uh, there's another word that's kind of associated with that, related to the, uh, the, the role of women in the church today, and that's egalitarianism. Complementarity says that women are made equally in God's image, and so they're made with equal value in dignity and honor and respect. They also acknowledges that they have different roles. So when you read the Bible, you see some of these different roles and that men uh, whom God has called to lead, I'll get into this uh, as I unpack it a little bit later, that men whom God has called to lead are to lead understanding that they are given that authority by God and they're also responsible for those around them. Egalitarianism will state that men and women, again, are created with equality, but there's equal roles of authority and equal responsibility. That's the term for egalitarianism. Uh, I believe, we believe, as we read the Bible, that there's really a clarity on this, and the clarity points to complementarity. Now listen, there comes a lot of baggage when I bring up these words. There's unhealthy patriarchy. There's unhealthy abuse of God's word. There's unhealthy hurts. Now, because of those things, what the culture has said is let's just, let's just trash it all and let's just redefine it all. But the problem is, is that with the living word of God, you can't do that. The problem isn't that the word of God is wrong. The problem is, is that the way we see the word of God, the way we apply the word of God needs to be redeemed. So let me make the argument for this complementary complementarity related to Adam and Eve, man and woman, in the church and in the family. 
few ways you see this. In God's created order, man was first. Man was created first. Another thing that you see is there was an accountability that was given. When Adam was created, he was the one that was given the command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see that when Eve took the fruit, she also knew the command. And so Adam told her this command because this was a command given before the creation of Eve. We see that Eve is called a helper. A helper meaning that she is called to help Adam, but Adam is the one bearing the weight of responsibility. If I call Josiah, or if Josiah calls me and says, I need your help with something, and I stop what I do, it means that I come under Josiah's authority for a minute so I can help him accomplish what he needs to accomplish. I'm his helper. He's the one that's given the responsibility. And we see that Adam is also the one who named Eve. He named the creation and he named the woman. And he named her Isha because she was taken out of man. So we see this pattern reflected not only in Genesis, but through the scriptures, also in the church in the home, where men are called to lead as elders and to be the spiritual leaders, not only of the church, but also their household. This is where the accountabilities and responsibilities rest. Now, I want to take a step back for a moment and say that part of the challenge that we have in our world, in our culture today, is that there's really not a good understanding of Scripture. We don't really have a, we don't really start with the Word of God as it comes to some of these things. We start with feelings, we start with emotion, we point to abuses, we point to all these different challenges that are related to it, but we don't start with the Word of God. And I want to take the words of uh, Amy Bird here, and I want you to understand your role as it relates to knowing the Word of God. Amy Bird says, no matter what our different circumstances and vocations may be, every woman and I would argue every man, every woman is a theologian. We all have an understanding about who God is and what he has done. The question is whether or not our views are based on what he has revealed in his word about himself. And yet many women and men, I will argue, are either turned off or intimidated by doctrine. And so what happens is, is rather than loving and cherishing doctrine and pursuing the word of God, We reject it. And as we reject it, we actually have a weakness. And the weakness is that we're not relying upon God's strength. And I want to point us to this reliance upon God's strength. So we have creation. That's kind of the the big unpacking that I'm going to do. And as we uh, go through these next uh, sections, um, track with me here. So the fall is distortion and division. So you have this beautiful picture of creation, this complementarity of relationships, this nakedness and no shame in the Garden of Eden. And then they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Genesis 3, 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband uh, who was with her and he ate. So this is a pretty big deal in the scriptures. This is a pretty big deal in the Bible because you have two chapters, you know, one page, depending on how big your Bible is, one page where everything was right. And then the rest of them deals with how do you deal with sin and brokenness in a fallen world? And it all started when Adam and Eve failed to trust in the God who gave them a good command and started trusting in themselves, started trusting something else. And that created distortion and division. And distortion and division is what ruled the world. Nancy Guthrie says, to eat of it was to assume the right to decide for oneself what is good and what is evil, rather than to to rather than depend on God to define good and evil. In other words, sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is deciding that you're the one who gets to make the rules. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They decided that God's rules and God's authority wasn't good anymore. And they were the one that were going to call 
what was good, good, and what was evil, evil. And as a result, we have the rebuke from Isaiah. He says, woe to you who call what is good, evil, and what is evil, good. And that's the story of the fall of humanity throughout all human history. Romans 1.25 summarizes like this. They exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you want a summarization of the fall, that's it in Romans 1.25. Hannah Anderson She's an author that unpacks this in her book, Made for More. She unpacks this for women. She says, the mother who invests so much of her identity in her children that when they're grown, she clings to them in unhealthy dependence and continues to live her life through theirs. The parent becomes the child. Distortion. The frugalista who finds her value in her ability to get a bargain but for all her savings doesn't have the generosity to actually use her money for her own or anyone else's benefit. Her soul shrinks to the size of her budget. The woman who draws her sense of self from, the, from an education or professional achievement so that despite having a PhD, she doesn't have the wisdom to understand the value of someone who doesn't. Or the missionary who finds a personhood in ministry, in her ability to help others, but cannot acknowledge her own weakness and accept grace when she needs it. This is distortion. This is when you put your identity in something else. And that's what sin did. And that's what disobeying God's command did, is it took our eyes off of our creator and put it upon creation. And we made objects that are unworthy of worship our soul's satisfaction. And as a result, we are dealing with unsatisfied souls in our world today. And we need God's grace and we need his Redemption. And that's where we move towards now is redemption. About 10 years ago, when I was pastoring at Cross Point Church in Lake Nona, there was a woman who came through the doors and she was really, she was trying really hard not to be noticed. She just wanted to slide in, slide out as if no one would see her. And, and I caught, caught her eye as she came in and I introduced myself, but you could tell she was in a hurry to get to that chair and just kind of hide out and hope nobody sees her. And so as she sat in her chair uh, and, and the service went on, I noticed that at the end of the service, she started to linger. She got up really slowly, contemplatively. And as she left the room, she came by me and she paused for a minute. When we glanced at each other's eyes, she introduced herself to me again. And she said, you know, it hasn't been 10 years since I've been to church, 10 years. I said, man, her name's Nancy. I said, Nancy, I'm so glad you're here. And she said, I, I think I am too. And then she said, I, I, asked, I asked her, how come it is that you haven't been to church in 10 years? And she says, I don't trust men and I don't trust God. And I said, well, why are you talking to me? And she says, I don't know. <laughs> and then she said, I'd like to connect next week. And so um, I made an appointment to meet with her at the church. And as she sat down, I could see this trepidation in her soul, this fear and angst. And I said, Nancy, why don't you just start by telling me your story? She said, I used to be really involved in the church. In fact, I was so involved that I was at everything that happened with the church. She said, I was single, and I was looking for Mr. Wright, and I thought I found him. We went to Bible study together. He knew the Bible. I thought he had a vibrant relationship with Christ. She said, he swept me, me off my feet. We got married. And it wasn't before too long that I realized that this man was using the word of God to abuse me. She began to share how he became authoritative and controlling. He was incredibly jealous with any normal, innocent conversation that would happen with any man. 
And then those little things that were warning signs started to turn into big warning signs. He became emotionally and mentally abusive of her. That emotional and mental abuse turned into physical and sexual abuse of her. And I couldn't help but while she was telling this story, begin to cry and weep. And in my heart, there's this angst, this madness that said, it should not be that way. And then she said, this is why I don't trust men and I don't trust God, because if God is like that, I want nothing to do with him. And as I sat there and spoke to her, I said, let me tell you about another man. This man laid down his self for you. This man, instead of being abusive, he took abuse for you. This man, rather than trying to control or manipulate you, he laid down his rights. He laid down his life so that you might live. And then I took the verses that this ex-husband never talked to her about, and I told her of this man, Jesus Christ, and she just began to weep. And she says, I love him. I love him. And I said, I do too. Because this man laid down his life for you. You can trust him. You can believe in him. You can walk in him. And then I remember seeing Nancy week in, week out, and God bring redemption to her life. It wasn't before long she was an air traffic controller at Orlando International Airport. She got transferred to another airport. Later on, she wrote me a note. She said, thank you so much for helping me meet Jesus, for helping me see him like I'd never seen him before. And her life was forever changed by the power of the gospel for the glory of God. You know what we need from men and women today? Is to lay down our propensity to use scripture for our own selfish benefit and wield it over others as a weapon. In particular, it has been wielded over women as a weapon and we need to repent. We must repent because the church is not about patriarchy. The church is about God's dignity, God's blessing, God's favor among all people, all time, all places for his glory and our good. And this is what redemption is like. And we see this in Genesis 3.15 as God gave the promise. And the promise that God gave was actually given as a curse to the to the snake, to the devil who, who manipulated Adam and Eve for his own benefit. He says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, you don't really see the vivid picture in Genesis that God is trying to describe. But the picture of Genesis 3.15 is the picture of Christ on the cross. Yes, the snake is bruising his heel, but the king victorious is in heaven and his heel is on the snake's head. He is the victor. He is the one who has brought salvation. He is the one who has crushed the, ser the serpent and cut off its head. This is the one that redemption looks forward to. And redemption happens not by us, but Christ on his cross. And Christ on his cross, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings redemption now through us. And the question that I ask for us, church, here today is how can you be used in your womanhood and manhood for the glory of God to bring redemption? That's the question I've been asking myself this week. Little history about uh, how I came to faith and, and a minister is that uh, um, it was about almost 19 years ago now that I became a Christian. 19 years ago, there was an emergent, emerging movement of the church uh, that was called, uh, popularly known today as Reform Theology. Some would call it the Young, Restless, and Reformed. And this movement of the church 
had got started as a reaction to uh, something that had happened before, which was the seeker-sensitive movement. Now, the seeker-sensitive movement was something that I believe God used in a marvelous way, but it had kind of a, uh, kind of a misplaced emphasis. And the misplaced emphasis led to kind of a spiritual dullness in men. And women were having to necessarily take the role and responsibility in leading a home or even leading the church spiritually, while men weren't understanding their God-given responsibility. It was a matter of necessity. And I, I know that, that some of us have gone through that in life where, you know, it's like um, it, there are times where I'm an absolute idiot and my wife has to say, you're being an idiot. She doesn't say that. She lovingly, kind of graciously uh, moves me in the right direction. But there's times where I'm abdicating my responsibility and my wife is stepping up. And I have to realize that now I'm called to lead. And so this Young Restless Reform movement was in response to that. And what they sought to do is, is they would see these churches that are filled not with men, but predominantly women. And so what they did is they said, how can we be more attractional to men? And so there was an emphasis on men's training, men's theology, men's discipleship, men's this, men's that. And what has happened there is, again, an un, unhealthy emphasis was formed. Not that those things were bad, but it came to the neglect of something else. And so I grew up in that movement. And oftentimes one of the ways I'm walking in repentance is not that that movement was entirely wrong, but there was a, there was a misplaced focus. And rather than a focus on men and women, it was leaned in one direction. As I've unpacked this scripture, I said one of the greatest ways that I could walk in repentance as a pastor and elder here for the good of our church, for the good of my family, is that I would see the place of women in the flourishing of God's church in our midst. That I would see the place of flourishing that God has for women in leading, in equipping and training and deploying women just like the church in Iran for the advancement of the gospel for the glory of God. And this is one of the areas that we seek to grow in. The conversation that I had uh, with our elders this week was one of how can we grow in this? And I'll also tell you for those of the ladies in the room today is that uh, next week on Saturday, Linda is hosting uh, another uh, interest meeting for women's ministry here at Cross Point Downtown. We want to launch a women's ministry that will equip and train women leaders in our church for God's glory. And that we would grow in God's word together and be equipped for mission to point people to Christ in our world. And then the last point here is glorification. And I'll close with this. There's a, a highly debatable passage of scripture in Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7. And the verse that's given in Galatians 4 is a verse that's shared to the church of Galatia. And when Paul shares this verse, he says, because you are sons... God has sent you the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The reason why this verse was highly debatable throughout culture is because historically, only those who could receive the inheritance of a father in a culture has been a son, predominantly in ancient Jewish culture. If, if, uh, uh, if a man died and his wife became a widow, the inheritance didn't go to the widow, but it went to the next of kin. And the next of kin was responsible to care for that widow with the inheritance. But in a lot of cases, there was a lot of abuse and things that happened related to that. Now, the interesting thing about this is Paul is using this language talking to both men and women. He is calling women sons. And it's not because women aren't daughters, but because he wants for women to know that in God's economy, they are viewed as sons. This would have been radical 
in that culture. And the reason why it would have been radical in that culture is because women didn't even have a place at the dinner table with the men. But yet here they are with equal inheritance of God's eternal blessings. And so the most radical message of a God who loves women, in fact, I argue all the time that Jesus is the greatest feminist that has ever lived, not in the negative sense. Jesus is the one who has fought for women, has bled for women, has died for women, and has given to women that you receive the internal, eternal inheritance of God. Charles Stan, uh, Chelsea Stanley says, Imagine the Galatian women coming to hear of this new status in God's kingdom as Paul speaks in these un otherwise familiar terms. Picture these women hearing Paul's letter read, a letter addressed to the entire Galatian church. They understood sonship and all that it entailed. So hearing that God had given both brother and sister together the status of sons would have blown them away. God stepped in and radically declared that men and women are one in Christ, equally privileged, equally exalted, co-heirs together. In his kingdom, both men and women receive the full inheritance through faith in him. And if you know the story of Jesus as he interacts with women, the woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, Mary and Martha, you know that Jesus actually doesn't treat them as lesser, but equal to. In fact, they're his closest confidants, some of his best of friends. And Mary, Jesus' mother, was with him as Jesus was crucified. And it was a woman named Mary that saw Jesus who rose, Jesus resurrected from the tomb, the first one. And so that's news to us that in the economy of God, there's these complementary relationship and these complementary relationships are meant to glorify and honor him. They're not less than. One's not greater than the other, but they carry the full weight of sonship that you are just as deserving as your brother in Christ because of what God has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for all that you've done. Lord, I ask that right now you would, you would fill up what is lacking in regards to what was preached here today. Lord, I understand I fully couldn't comprehensively cover this subject in great detail. I also understand that there's a lot of baggage related to this. Father, I pray that your word is heard for what it is. That God is applied in the way that you seek it to be applied. And that you would help us with all of your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward to serve in us communion. And as we take communion today, we acknowledge that We've acknowledged every week, Jesus is Lord. He's the one that's in control. And we submit to him. Would you stand as we worship together?